consultant comes in for two, three days. Whatever they see, they write a report about it. And that report is very important to those donors and the people who are willing to help. I'm Gordon Peake, the host of Memorandum of Understanding from the Development Policy Centre, a new podcast series that peers behind the bureaucratic curtain to tell the stories of the people, policies and politics of international aid. The subject of this podcast is a Pacific travelogue entitled The Rising Tide, written by an aid worker, Tom Bamforth. The book recounts some of the journeys that Tom took on boat, helicopter, scooter and rattletrap bus during the course of 10 years working in and out of the Pacific Islands, where he seeks out what Tongan, Fijian writer Epeli Haofa called the ordinary people, who, because of the poor flow of benefits from the top, skepticism about stated policies and the like, tend to make decisions about their lives independently sometimes with surprising and dramatic results that go unnoticed or ignored. Tom listens, he notes, he observes, he bears witness, and his book has many of the elements of what makes a good travelogue. It is anecdotal, amusing, wry, provocative, perceptive, and deeply humane. It's written with a light and engaging touch, but I think of it as a political book, political in the sense that George Orwell characterized the term as being motivated to move the world in a certain direction. Tom is an aid believer, but that doesn't stop him pointing out some of the more peculiar and counterproductive features and consequences of aid and the national interest calculations that lurk in the shoals. When done correctly, a travelogue offers three distinct types of exploration. Into a particular time abroad, into the author's brain, and also most profoundly into the psyche of the reader. There's a lot in this book and in the conversation that Tom and I had that will pique aid workers and those interested in aid into querying and thinking and reflecting on whether their actions are moving the world in the direction that they want. Travel writing has always been my favorite genre, but there's times when I'm reading these books that I almost sometimes want to reach into the words and get the perspectives of some of the people that the author has interviewed and rendered on the page. In the words of the Ikerbas and African-American poet Teresia Tewa, quote, you can't just paint one brush stroke over a nation and say that's who they are, end quote. So that's what we did. In the Argo of Aid, we conducted some key informant interviews with some of the people that Tom met in the course of his travels. So, as well as hearing from Tom, you'll hear from Tatawa and Linda speaking about Tuvalu and Vanuatu. And as we planned and recorded this podcast in the early weeks of February, the Pacific Islands Forum, the region's peak regional body, began to rupture in the wake of a bitter dispute over the election of the next Secretary-General of the Forum, five member countries from the Northern Pacific opted to leave. But as we hunkered down to shape the material, we felt estranged from this wrangle happening at a domain of high politics that were far from the daily preoccupations 
of the book and also some of the conversations that we had. What was really striking about the interviews that we conducted was that this dispute wasn't mentioned, even in passing. And that's not to say this dispute is not important, but to underscore that it cannot be the only brush that is used to paint the goings-on in the sea of islands. This is a memorandum of understanding about an aid worker's journey to understand the Pacific, of going beyond the tarmac road, of seeking as many threads of a story as is possible to weave, and uncovering, as we find out, one of the few silver linings of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I began by asking Tom about the title of his book, The Rising Tide. Well, the title comes from a, a speech that was given, I think, in 2014 or, or thereabouts um, by Julie Bishop. Good morning, everybody. I'm delighted to be here. Um, who at that stage was um, a sort of relatively new foreign minister and she was giving a, a, a talk at the ANU. We want to find ways to make Australia's aid program work more effectively. And the, uh, the ANU speech was, um, was all about sort of introducing a new, a new aid policy and uh, the coalition's approach to, to aid and AusAid um, uh, that then was was, uh, was being amalgamated into, into DFAT and a massive cuts to the aid budget and all that kind of stuff. And there was a, an announcement of a new aid paradigm. And the new aid paradigm was described as, um, as a focus on economic investment. And the catchphrase that she used was, so a rising economic tide lifts all boats. And, um, and I thought, you know, from the moment I heard that phrase, that that was the, because I was, I was writing about the Pacific, and that was really the kind of the title of the book, you know, who was the, the objects of, uh, of this rising tide, and wasn't this a rather sort of unfortunate phrase to use in Pacific context in any case, given the likely effects of climate change and, and all this sort of and, thing. And Julie Bishop herself makes a sort of cameo in the book. So that's right, yes. Yeah. So, so this was shortly after cyclone in Fiji. So this is a you know, Category 5 cyclone that caused very significant damage. And there was this kind of almost regal visit, I suppose, from... Um, and this happens from time to time in, in the middle of disaster responses, whether it's Julie Bishop or presidents of prime ministers or, or you know, people like sort of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolly and various celebrities from A to Z grades. Uh, will just sort of drop in on, on a response and kind of everything stops. And on this particular occasion, everyone was kind of corralled into the uh, Grand Hotel in, uh, in Suva. And uh, Julie Bishop and the, uh, the Prime Minister of Fiji and uh, a number of other dignitaries sort of flew past in a helicopter. And I think the, the idea was that, that this was a moment to kind of meet and press the case uh, for whatever, whatever all the different institutions who were there wanted to press the case for. More aid, more funding, more this, more that, more focus on education, more all this kind of stuff. So everyone was sort of sucked into the, <laughs> into the, the bright light to the hotel and, uh, and they just, we watched as the, uh, the helicopters flew past and went off somewhere else. <laughs> so, a massive anticlimax. <laughs> I mean, the, but the crucial thing was missing and that was the link between... Uh, people who decide about aid policy and the, and the communities themselves. And that, that link, the last mile, the relationship with the communities is, is what the NGOs do. <laughs> and that was the thing that was missing and that was what made a difference in people's lives. So I felt that there was a, a real problem with that sort of politicisation of aid in a way. And this sort of grand theatre of performance played out much the same the year before in Vanuatu when Cyclone Pam barreled in 
And Tom Wright's been part of this kind of Tower of Babel style event where hordes of aid workers flew in and seems, you know, according to the chapter in the book, to spend as much time arguing over turf as building and rehabilitating the homes that were wiped out. We sought out Ni Vanuatu consultant Linda Kenny, who understands what it means to be part of a local disaster response. I was here when TC Pam strike. I mean, international actors came in. We got lots and lots and lots of them coming in. You'll see them walking down on the street, big crowd of them. And they were more like tourists to us, but we knew that they were here to help. It was designated, I think, at that stage as a level three response or a very top tier of response. There's all these tiers and levels in, in these things. I often wonder what the committee is that makes these tiers. How do they come up with their tiers? I've got no idea. Okay. <laughs> but there's no other level. There was, there was level three, but there wasn't a two and a one. This is like COVID where we constantly appear to be going up to a level that we didn't think existed before. You know, Tier four restrictions, tier five. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's just, a, it's just an administrative way of saying panic, really. I mean, <laughs> and sounding like you're in control. <laughs> we have a procedure for this when actually we don't. I mean, I mean the place was, was sort of taken over with um, UN agencies and NGOs and aid workers all flying in. Militaries of five different countries came in, uh, civil military liaison um, meetings that went on. There was in the, the NDMO office in Vanuatu, it had this kind of paramilitary air, lots of people in uniforms, charging around, sort of, you know, shouting sir at each other. It was quite different from the kind of civilian air of most sort of aid and development uh, organisations. I remember speaking to one of the, the uh, Nivanamati people who worked at the, um, the NDMO office, and uh, I asked her how she felt about this kind of, the arrival of the massive kind of aid workers, and she sort of shrugged and said, well, look, you know, in uh, a couple of weeks, uh, you know, the men in green will have gone, and uh, it'll be back to normal. And, and there was a sort of sense in which everyone who ordinarily worked in the office was just sort of hiding and then would, would sort of re-emerge once the kind of the, the commotion had, uh, had sort of passed. I think we had so many of them and uh, I don't know, but I think the Vanuatu government didn't know how to utilise them because they all came in like really in big, big, big number. I know that one Sunday we went down to swim at a place called honeymoon beach and you see them all day sitting on the beach and they were having a great time. <laughs> there was a, a country manager, I wouldn't name uh, the INGO, but he was saying that it was more like looking after them than them coming into us. So it was a hassle trying to accommodate them. And so that was the sort of the, the sense of it. I mean, it was very well-intentioned, and the good thing about that was that there were a lot of resources that went in which would not have otherwise been available. But at the same time, it was, it was excessive and may, may well have been the last hurrah of that kind of aid world, really. You contrast that with Cyclone that hit Vanuatu in 2020, just after COVID struck the world, and there was no influx of international aid agencies. There was no people in those uh, kind of Gillette uh, jackets with the titles embossed upon it. Uh, Ni Vanuatu had to basically kind of get on with it themselves. Can you talk a bit about your experiences in 2015 and maybe reflect on, it's almost a cliche now to say COVID changes everything, but whether COVID is likely to change the way by which humanitarian responses happen. Fast forward to TC Harold uh, last year, 
but this time I didn't didn't leave Melbourne. Um, I uh, I did actually the same job, but remotely. Vanuatu uh, had a, a sort of a national quarantine in a way, so no no aid workers flew in. Uh, they didn't have COVID in Vanuatu, uh, but they sealed the borders just as Australia had sealed its borders. Um, and managed it really almost entirely locally. So it was a very different uh, feel. It was all managed locally. All the meetings were obviously in Bislama. Um, the local structures were in place. I think that the speed of the response, there was a lot of criticism at the beginning around the speed of the response. I think it was slow at the start, but actually it picked up pretty quickly. And ultimately it was probably comparable to the, the, the speed of the response of Cyclone TZ Pam, despite the fact that there were there weren't, you know, five different military forces charging around in helicopters and all this kind of thing. I think COVID-19, it was the main uh, factor that changes the way INGOs and the government went out to respond. Yeah, there were so many things that were not really good, like the coordination, taking the supplies to the affected communities. I was slow. Information collected from the field wasn't always are correct. So organization departments, they had to go in two, three times. So yeah, uh, even though we had all of those, you could see that there was a good collaboration starting to, to be built uh, around different INGOs and um, different government ministries and departments as well. We were fortunate to and happy that the um, international actors were outside. So we can just go to them whenever we need help and let us go and let us lead because that's what we are good at, right? We know our people, we know the place, we know all these different issues. So customs, culture, tradition. So it was kind of like really nice because then we were, the people responding were also able to, you know, they go to training, 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 but they weren't able to actually be the ones implementing. So they were very happy and they, they said, now if there's another disaster, we know if we go out there, we will, we will be able to do this ourselves. We don't need the international actors because we've had that experience during DC Pan. I'm sorry, DC Harold. <laughs> if there's one thing that I took away from my conversation with Linda, it was the sense of just how proud she and her Nivanuatu colleagues were at being seen to be and being front and center in this response. And it really sort of made me think about within communications for development, whether we're shedding enough light on locally engaged workers, national staff who are delivering aid. And one of the most poignant sections of the book is when Tom visits the old Fijian capital of Levuka, a place where long ago doesn't feel that far away. The place has a sepia time capsule Air. And in the place, Tom meets a man with a tarpaulin emblazoned with the red kangaroo of Australia's aid program. But the tarpaulin is flipped around so that the passing person can't discern the branding. And it prompted Tom to reflect about whether aid branding itself was counterproductive. Yeah, that known to many as the red rat that has to be kind of stamped on, on everything, really. And um, it's fundamental. I mean, in... The house that I have, I don't have the name of the mortgaging bank uh, stamped onto the front of the house so that any time I have a, a guest, you know, they know it's, you know, <laughs> bank X or bank Y. I mean, I don't. Um, and so 
why should that happen to anybody else? I mean, there's, there's a fundamental question of, of human dignity. I mean, that's what the whole humanitarian endeavour is about, really. It's, it's to support life with dignity to people who are undergoing traumatic uh, experiences. And to use that as uh, a moment of advertising to extract a long-term favour um, to ask them to say, you know, that they know that this particular uh, relief item is coming from, you know, the Australian people, the British people, the American people, whichever people it happens to be. It's just, it's um, fundamentally inhuman, really. And so very gently and very, quite subtly, people were beginning to subvert that. Um, and they were doing that by just flipping things over uh, so that um, the tarpaulins were no longer uh, visible as being Ausaid or DFAT uh, tarpaulins. They were just ordinary tarpaulins. And, um, yeah, I thought that was a, it was a, a really good thing. And I think it was something that, that we should all learn from in mean, so much of the aid world. I mean, so many people observe this. You go into refugee camps around the world. I mean, it's a jostle of logos and slogans. Many um, aid workers have to wear the gilets, which I think also in the aid trade are known as the wanker jacket, and these have, um, you know, sort of embossed with, uh, like, racing drivers, really, you know, with every manner of advertisement and sponsor and so on. And it really does, does no one any favours, and it, I think it fundamentally undermines the kind of the seriousness of the, uh, of, of the intent, uh, which is around, you know, life with dignity. And where do you think this comes from, this need to kind of emboss and stamp and make a mark on every conceivable jacket or banner or, or event that's happening? I mean, there must be something that is driving that. I think that increasingly it's, it's regarded as a kind of uh, an advertising budget for the uh, selected sort of foreign policies of, um, of different countries. That's really what it is. It's to show that we're here, we're your friend. <laughs> you have to know that we're your friends, <laughs> you know. And uh, when, the, when the time comes for us, you know, vote for us in the General Assembly or whatever, whatever it might be. I mean, there's a, obviously a favour to be pulled in at some stage. But I think it's fundamentally motivated by a worry about funding getting cut. And you've got to constantly sort of say that you're doing well. It's like a, a daily renewal of your marriage vows, you know. And you know when people are daily renewing their marriage vows, you know, there's probably some, something troublesome going on. I mean, it is actually ultimately counterproductive because if you're in a market and somebody comes up and sort of constantly sort of tugs at your arm and says, my friend, my friend, my friend, you know, come and, uh, you know, they're trying to sell you something and, um, and probably something you don't want. And it's the same thing, I think, with aid programs. I mean, there's a bit of overkill going on. People don't like it as much. They don't want it as much. They just, they just trust it for all the protestation of, of, you know, international friendship. But I remember uh, the first disaster I was involved with, which was the Pakistan earthquake in 2005. And this is when uh, differed was kind of in its, in its heyday, and under Claire Short, actually, at the time, who took a, a very sort of progressive approach, I suppose, to um, aid funding and aid policy and so on. And one of the things that she had established was that there would be no branding. And the paradox of this was that people thought incredibly highly of Difford because they just had turned up and they made a difference. They funded the right things, they had the right people to go and advise on, on areas of, of need or where they had technical specialities. They were always there, they were really well informed, and they didn't make a big song and dance about it. And as a consequence of that, everybody wanted to talk to Difford. Everyone knew about Difford, they knew about its effectiveness. The Americans who made everyone go around saying, you know, thanks very much to the American people for, you know, this whatever it was, were, were sort of much more suspicious. 
But fast forward 10 years, and of course, the UK has started to brand its aid just as aggressively as the Americans have. And this conversation about the United States segued us into talking about some of the sections of the book where Tom visits the Northern Pacific, Marshall Islands and Palau. I went to Marshall Islands God, four, a long time ago, like six, seven years ago, and it was just it struck me as being the perfect setting for a kind of mystery novel. There's really interesting characters that you talk about in the book, kind of military contractors, uh, Marshallese that were desperately, many of them trying to leave their, their country to go work in the United States. And the flavor of the American Pacific is very, very different from parts of the South Pacific, Polynesia or Melanesia, how, just how you do feel that you're in a part of the United States. I felt that I, got, that I was living in a very air-conditioned version of Majuro. I was there for a week. We got kind of driven here and there. We got to meet various kind of dignitaries who, and we all sort of performed our, our roles. We got to spend a lot of time in that Robert Reamer's hotel that was a kind of, you know, sort of Rick's cafe of the region. Um, but you managed to strike out further. Um, you go to Kwajalein, which is the, um, the, the island that is under U.S. military control. That is a, the launching pad and the collection point the, the pitchers mitt for interballistic missiles that are sort of flung back and forth across the Pacific um, between Marshall Islands and California. But you also visit the island of Ebai, which is beside it. And it's the contrast that you draw between those two islands is, is really the most visceral image that I'll take away from, from the book. In Kwajalein, you've got this almost kind of Truman Show type place where people are living behind picket fences. Whereas in Ebai, the cooks, the cleaners, the people who are working servicing the base are living a much more hard scrabble and a much more difficult existence. And it's the kind of dark side of the sort of compact that Northern Pacific countries have made with the United States. There's a real sense of us and them that's going on in Marshall Islands. So tell us about your experiences. And maybe you could begin by talking about the supermarket where you go to, which is, I think, one of the most sort of forlorn places I've ever read about in any form of travel literature. Yes, uh, well, there's not much to eat. I suppose this is the problem with, with atoll societies uh, generally, is that there's, uh, there's not a lot of places where you can grow things. Um, so everything has to be imported. And I suppose with places like uh, Ibai and Kwajalein, they live and work in the, in the economy. So there's not much money, but there is money. And so things are, things are bought rather than grown or fished or or done as they, as they may be in other parts of the Pacific. So they go to the, the, the supermarket, and the supermarket is just full of out-of-date packets of chips and sort of spam and soft drinks, and uh, it's just this collection of expired plastic and salt and oil and fat. And that's, that's sort of what people, uh, people have to eat. Um, and this, this accounts for the fact that so many people in the Pacific who have been removed one way or another from their traditional lives and uh, the places where they've, they've lived and their livelihoods and so on and end up uh, in these places where the only way of surviving is to, is to buy the stuff in the market and that's what ultimately makes them very, very ill. And Ibai is a place where a lot of people from uh, different outer islands where the American um, nuclear testing program occurred so there are people who are from Ibai, but there are people from Bikini and from Enoatuk and, and many of the other uh, atolls and, and lagoons where the t testing occurred. And they can't live in their ancestral homeland, so they are displaced. Um, and they've gone to, to Ibai 
and part of that displacement has resulted in a change of diet, change of life, change of livelihood, and a change of uh, change of diet, which has you know, really catastrophic consequences in the uh, in the Marshalls, well, throughout the Pacific, really. But it was very noticeable there. I mean, it's a very beautiful spot, and it's a it's a remarkable place in many ways. But there is this this tragedy that underpins it, which is the the tragedy of the testing and the um, the tragedy of displacement um, and the the tragedy really of unplanned urbanization. I mean, I think when I went to to Ibai, I mean, it's true of, of Madrone, but but especially of Ibai. I mean, this is one of the most densely populated parts of the planet. We think about sort of urban density and and lack of of sort of urban planning. I mean, maybe you think about um, you know places like Dhaka or or Lagos or these sorts of places, but but you know. Uh, sort of up there is also um, Ibai, population 10,000 or something, but they're all living on, on a few square metres of, of land. So it has all the, all the costs, all the all things that are associated with that, of, um, of poor planning, of waste disposal, of incredibly high, high costs of things. I felt that was a story that wasn't really written much about the, the Pacific, which was the story of the urban Pacific. There is also a certain sort of cultural efflorescence to do with the, the urban Pacific, and these are stimulating places to be, but there's a, there's a flip side too, and Ibai is sort of one of, the, one of the flip sides, I suppose, of that urban experience. And we leave the Marshall Islands now, and we go south to the North Island of New Zealand and meet a Tuvalan man called Tatawa Pesi. You'll have heard Tatawa's voice at the beginning of the podcast. He's moved here recently from Funafuti, Tuvalu's capital, a place where when the king tides strike, a third of the island gets swallowed up by seawater. Tatawa is one of the people that most influence Tom's understandings of different priorities and different perspectives when it comes to aid, but also most profoundly the impact of climate change upon everyday life in large parts of the Pacific, places where the tide is rising. Ironically, as Tom begins to tell us, it was a coral issue that brought Tom to Tuvalu. That's Carl Music, C-H-O-R-A-L, as opposed to Carl as in under the sea. The reason I went to Tuvalu was because the aid program wasn't going very well. I mean, the, the administrative frameworks weren't being met, the reports weren't coming in, the finances were, uh, from the Australian side of things anyway, were not proceeding as, uh, as they might. And we'd struggled to get in contact with the, the partners who in, in Tuvalu who were running the program. And for weeks on end, we weren't really getting anything uh, much out of them. And when I did finally get through to my counterparts there, um, they said, well, look, you know, um, you know, we can't do something. There's an island choir. You know, there's, there's all this singing going on. And it all seemed a bit sort of strange, a bit improbable, and a bit weird. And eventually there was a, a line in one of the budgets for, uh, for sort of M&E travel. And so I thought, uh, better go and have a, have a look at what was, what was actually happening in this, uh, in this place. And, um, you know, why were people banging on about choirs all the time? And so I got there and uh, it, it was sort of a, an amazing experience, really. It just sort of, that was my first time in, in Tuvalu. It was... Uh, flying into the airport and the plane had to sort of do a couple of laps to kind of clear everyone off the runway because the runway is the centerpiece in town. Uh, it landed, the, the place was obviously extremely small. I didn't think I'd ever been on an atoll uh, that small before and there was this sort of sense of, of precarity almost. You weren't really so sure, um, you know, you could just see the ocean on either side as the plane came down. It was such a sort of a narrow strip. 
And then um, I met my my colleagues who and it, who were deeply involved in this um, in this choral event, and it turned out to be such a, a, an event of such fundamental importance in the context of of Tuvalu. It was really about bringing all the all the different island choirs together. It was the centenary of an island choir. All the different parts of Tuvalu came together. All the elders came together. They sang. They exchanged the stories from each of the each of the different islands. Um, they talked about the the traditional experiences and stories and and um, storytelling and passing out of knowledge to subsequent generations. And there was a deep and profound seriousness about what they were doing. And it's dawned on me that that really, you know, forget the the sort of aid program that I'd gone to. Um, to go and sort of be part of. I mean, something something more fundamental was happening, and it was it was really to do with the the questions of of what happens in the longer term to Tuvalu and Tuvalu society, and and in the in the face of of the rising tides of climate change, and this was an exercise in cultural preservation of the most profound sort. We sort of shuffle paper. We talk about the sort of the, the projects and so on, but there are these these overwhelming forces, social forces in the countries that we're working with. That that if we don't think about them and respect them and understand them, then we do get a bit lost. I think in the aid world. One of the things that when when we have people coming from overseas is to make sure that we also they also have a chance to see the culture and and learn uh, what our daily lives. Uh, we do back in the islands. You know, people come with different perspectives on different matters. So I believe, you know, how we see things is different to how Tom and the rest of the other people from outside Tuvalu sees uh, things. So whatever that is written in papers, they might see differently. But whereas the long-term impacts that the islands are feeling every day may not be seen straight away by the visitors. Tatawa Pacey is um, the person that brought me first to Tuvalu and um, introduced me to Tuvalu and um, his friends and family. And we had a number of conversations really about um, the, the possibilities of migration and, and what this meant and whether there, there could be um, a future for his children in Tuvalu. I began to understand for the first time, really, what it was like for people making decisions under the, the cloud of the sort of existential threat, I suppose, of climate change. I lived in Tuvalu all my life until I left in Funafut, especially on my own, the capital island. They're not growing any more um, local staple food like taro, and we don't have those anymore plantations because of the seawater intrusion. And one of the major crops tree, they call it the breadfruit tree. A lot has been damaged and, and died, which we always use for our, our food. Um, yeah, so those are the most direct impacts. So everyone is now, especially on Funafuti, just mainly rice and whatever that you can buy from the, from the shop, from imported food. But the local ones are just hard to find. It's, it's, it's okay just for an island in, in Tuvalu to disappear, but to have the whole country disappear and lose our identity, it is a very sad thing and the last thing for us to, uh, to want to have or want to know that it will happen. I love travel writing as a genre and I often think it has a kind of 
Heineken effect in the sense that it reaches parts that other genres can't reach. And through talking to people, through getting lost, through getting sick, through the happenstance of life, you get to have a much more rich and, and dappled understanding that can probably be found from leafing through you know, brochures or, or official documents or, I dare say, some academic papers. But yet it's not a genre that's strongly associated with international development and research. I think there's some kind of inverse snobbery here. I read a wonderful novel when I was working in Bougainville that was written by an under-acknowledged Bougainvillean writer called Regis Stella, and the book is called Matasara, Crooked Eyes. And it's set among unhappy Papua New Guinean graduate students in Sydney in the 1990s. And there's this wonderful sequence in the book when the central character meets a prominent Australian academic who is engaged in a research project about Papua New Guinea. The academic talks about her work, and one of the characters says to her, oh, you're a travel writer then. And she gets really offended, and she says, quote, I am not a travel writer. I am a serious researcher. I think the thing that, uh, that travel writing does, in a way, is to transgress boundaries. And that's what, what really annoys people about it, because it deals with, with history, with politics, with writing, with society, with anthropology. But it is actually none of those things. I mean, it's a fundamentally different form of curiosity, I think, that sort of weaves in and out, is rooted in, in daily experiences. It takes the experience of the outsider as well as a, a, a way of getting a, a sort of perception of what's going on in different countries, but also as a kind of an experience of subjectivity in a way. It's also a way of, of reflecting on your own life and societies and encounters and, and presumptions and so on. And I suppose that a lot of that subjectivity is, is not part and parcel of necessarily of, of development practice, uh, certainly, where it's about being a, an agent of change. And a bimble is not a methodologically sound, you know, <laughs> um, academic approach. <laughs> and, um, but it's also the one that draws people in. It's, it, these are the stories that people are interested in and want to hear. That brings us to the close of our Memorandum of Understanding from the Development Policy Centre. We've written a blog that gathers together some of the fireside stories that went untold. For more tales from Tom, I suggest a copy of his book, The Rising Tide, which is published by Hardy Grant and available wherever books are sold. Pathways to purchase are included in the show notes. I'm Gordon Peake. Thank you for joining. Our producer is Julia Bergen, and music is thanks to Luther Canute. We go to air every two weeks, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd invite you to follow us on Twitter at MOU underscore POD. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. 